Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to our last podcast of the year. This one is about lessons we can learn about teacher retention by looking overseas. It's about further education and funding. It's about accountability. It's about Progress 8. And it's also about one of those issues you keep telling us is becoming more and more important. Quite right to students' mental health. Hope you enjoy it and hope you have a great summer. So my name is Karen Edge and I'm an academic at the Institute of Education. I'm a reader in educational leadership, but I'm also the Pro Vice Provost International at UCL. And give us a flavour of the kind of work you do then. So my education academic research at the moment has been focused for the last five years on Generation X leaders. So working with leaders who are under now probably under 42, 43, and trying to understand how in different big cities, in London, New York, and Toronto, we've expanded to Santiago, we've done a bit of work in... Um, Shanghai, trying to understand how these leaders' careers have been shaping, about how they've arrived where they are and what they want to do when they grow up. And uh, here we are in England. You have worked in various places and you therefore know different systems. We have an extraordinary problem in terms of both recruitment but also in terms of retention. Just give us some reflections on the kind of things you think we perhaps ought to be looking at. Oh, uh, I also live with a primary school teacher, um, and I have a seven-year-old, so I, I see this as a, as a governor and as a partner and as a mum, as well as a researcher, and I'm Canadian by accent. So I grew up in the Ontario education system in the state-funded school system. So I think there's a few things that when we talk about recruitment and retention, we need to really pay attention to. One is negative press. I mean, how often do we read stories? As I know as a mum and as a parent, I read stories every day about things that are wrong with our schools. And even though it may seem that it's about exclusion or funding or the arts, as a, as a parent, you read those as an, an aggregate of schools in England aren't very good, which creates a certain amount of angst, which means that you don't trust your schools. And I think we have extraordinary teachers in schools, and we need to, to show them the love that they deserve for the care that they give our children. I think one of the other challenges we have at the moment is something that we refer to a lot in our decentralization work, which is because schools are now responsible for professional development and brokering their own services, there's a new layer of the education market that exists in London, as it does in New York, where there's lots of NGOs where, that are hoovering up some of our, our best and brightest teachers. And the challenge with that is that we have lots of organizations to support schools, but it makes schools feel like they aren't enough. It means they're spending their money outside their school to provide resources that should, in many cases, be delivered in school. But it also means that there's a, a flow of teachers out of our schools into the education system as a whole. So I think being mindful of that and what that looks like and the influence of decentralization is something we're, we're focusing on. It's interesting. It almost creates a kind of victim mentality that the solution, you know, is, is beyond our control. And I know that's something we want to change. I want to just ask you two other things. Um, the government is going to pilot this idea of sabbaticals, and I know that sabbaticals is something you're familiar with because Ontario has done sabbaticals. How, how do they work there? So most of the sabbaticals, it, it's slightly different because there are strong local authorities in Ontario, and when you're hired as a teacher, you become a teacher of that local authority. So when you can subscribe almost to this sabbatical program, it is often considered to be what they call on the street a four over five. So you receive four years of salary over the five years that you 
um, subscribe for. And what that means is, is that you work your first four years and then the fifth year is yours. So you don't have to pursue an educational program. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be able to work your four years. So you could have a year's holiday. You could have a year's holiday. So what's amazing um, as a London mum with a kid in a primary school is that I'm due an academic sabbatical. And I would love to be able to take my son on a you know six-month research holiday where he was volunteering and learning about different countries. I can't take him out of school because if I take him out of school, he will not have a place when we come back. And I believe really strongly that he wants to be and deserves to be in a state-funded school in England. Whereas I look at some of my Canadian colleagues, I have quite a few relatives that are teachers or friends that are teachers, and I watch their journeys on Facebook with their families, moving their family back to the country where their parents originally came from. Their children will go to schools in Greece, they will learn Greek, they will make friends in Greece, and then they will go back and they will be given a spot in the Ontario system. So there's two parts of the sabbatical program that I think are interesting. One is that notion of you have to commit for that five-year period of time. Most teachers will teach for much longer in Ontario. So you have an incentive to be able to stay. If you are an Ontario teacher who signed up for four over five, you're accepting the fact that you earn 80% of your salary. But what's most interesting to me is that there are quite a few teachers that love teaching. They don't want to take a break. Either their kids are the wrong age or they're not really ready or their partner's not available to go with them or they just love teaching. So they can choose to continue teaching and stay in their schools or move somewhere else within the district. And then they simply get that extra money that they've banked for their fifth year in addition to the salary that they've had. So I think when we think about sabbaticals in England, we need to think really carefully about, are we creating it as a retention mechanism? Do we have enough money invested in the system? Are we asking people to commit for a particular period of time? I think 10 years is one of the numbers that I've seen. 10 years is too long. Mm. Because when you look at the new generation of teachers coming in, or my partner's generation, who's coming in as a second career teacher, what they want is something to renew and invigorate them. I don't think sending someone to learn something new may be the best thing. I think some of our teachers in England at the moment, given the system, just need a rest. And let's just talk about England finally because you used the word trust right at the beginning of this conversation and it feels from what people are saying to me as if one of the main ingredients that we are now lacking in the English system is a sense of trust, trust in leadership, trust from leadership in terms of teachers and so on and so forth. And you've been doing some international comparisons and you chose Scotland rather than England. Just tell us what is it that Scotland's doing that England isn't doing? So I think there's, if you, if you talk to people, one of the most interesting things is we do a lot of work in other countries and whenever we choose to go to a country, people in that country will say, why are you here? It's not good here. So we chose, we've done some research for the WISE Foundation for one of their big research reports and we, it was about teacher motivation and retention and we chose six different jurisdictions. England was not one of them. We looked at motivation and retention and we chose Scotland because the Scottish government is looking globally to try and find a way to learn from other countries, to see what other countries are doing to take care of their teachers. There are different career mechanisms that are being put in place. There are different positions that are in schools that teachers can move into. But they're also trying to create a fabric of structures that are supported by government, that are given the freedom to work. Although SCAL, which is the Scottish Educational Leadership Unit, has now gone into the Department of Education. But from what I've seen, early days, that the department is really trying to learn from and grow from the enthusiasm momentum that SCAL had created in the system. So I think what 
in attracted us about Scotland was that notion of a career, a deliberate discussion about the career, a recognition that teachers need to be cared for, a recognition that there may be issues of retention in the future that need to be addressed, but a recognition that the government just do that last bit yeah. again. So a, a recognition, what, what we saw in Scotland was a recognition that the government has a responsibility to try and make the education system better and not from a hierarchical perspective where we need different kinds of schools, but trying to create a system that is equitable and, and purposeful for all. Dr Karen Edge, thank you very much. Simon Partington, I'm the principal here at Runshaw College. Uh, tell us a bit about Runshaw College. We've w walked around and had a look, and I know it hasn't got quite the number of students because it's post-exam season, but gosh, there are a lot of students on a big campus. Just uh, how would you characterise uh, the college? Well, it's, um, it's a college for everyone in the community, really. It meets the needs of um, yeah, all uh, learners in the, in the South Ribble and Chorley areas and, and beyond. Um, so we offer a wide range of courses for young people uh, and adults uh, and we also um, offer an apprenticeship programme as well. And we just met a group of I don't know, 15, 20 students doing all kinds of different courses, all of them essentially seeing education as a stepping stone into their future. What struck me walking around here is that you do things, and you used the word ethical you know, four years ago in your kind of strategic plan, you do things on behalf of young people rather than just what would play well for the college. Could you just kind of talk through that because it's so interesting? Yes, okay, so I think we've always tried to um, do what is right uh, for our um, main stakeholders, of course, our learners. Um, and uh, so yeah, there, there's lots of examples of, of where the college has taken decisions um, that probably um, uh, have a financial cost, but we believe that they're worth it because of the benefits to the learners. So for example, currently with our A-level um, offer, um, we are still allowing students to have the breadth of study of four subjects in the first year of A-level study uh, because we believe there's an awful lot to be gained um, uh, for, for those learners in terms of skills and additional knowledge um, uh, by, by doing that. So there's just, there's just one of many examples I could give you where the college um, yeah, does things. Um, every, every decision we take um, uh, is with the best interest of our learners in mind. I have to say that's palpable when you walk around and when you listen to the students and it's also very visible when you walk in and you see the emphasis given to supporting students and so you've got this team of tutors, I don't know if you call them tutors, yeah, but, yeah, we call but you, them, yeah. you just, just describe that because it's so distinctive. Yeah, so uh, it was actually way back in 2011 we were looking at um, models across the, uh, the um, post-16 sector for personal tutoring and and the, the one that we, um, that we really liked, we saw it in a, a couple of colleges actually around the country, was the essentially specialist personal tutor model. So um, having a team of uh, people whose job it is to look after the holistic experience of the learners and they don't do any teaching um, uh, because the, um, in pr prior to 2011 we had teachers doing personal tutoring and um, uh, and you know, even though that's a, a perfectly acceptable model, you do get a situation where some teachers, because they're busy teaching in classrooms, they're not available for their learn, they're not available for their students um, all all of the time. So yeah, we've we've gradually over the last six years moved to a situation in which we've got a team of specialists that do the personal tutoring for our learners. So they each have a caseload of approximately 150 to 200 learners, 
and it is their full-time job to look after the holistic um, uh, experience at college and uh, progression plans for, for, for their caseload of learners. And, 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 and it works incre- incredibly well. Um, I think it, 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 it just means that there's this uh, this lovely open plan space where any student at any point, if they need to go and talk to either their personal tutor or they need to, uh, to see a counsellor or something, has got access in a time when we're all worried about mental health. I mean, it just is so reassuring from a parental point of view that you're providing that. That's right. We've got five uh, college counsellors. Um, they all work on a part-time basis, but um, I think on any given day there's three counsellors in, in the college. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're very busy. Um, they, they they make a, a fantastic contribution to uh, the you know the welfare of our of our learners here, um, and uh, yeah provide one of one of many very important specialist services that we're we're able to offer to our students here at Runshaw. And Simon, behind the scenes, we've been talking about the grim issues of post-16 funding and so on, which we know are just desperate. But uh, and we're not talking about that now. We're just acknowledging it. But what what I also want to acknowledge is here is a place absolutely rooted in just working with other human beings. I mean, I've never felt a place which is so palpably just all about potential of people. It's a, it's a real credit to you. Bravo. Yeah, no, thank you. That's really kind. Yeah, we've, um, you know, our three um, key areas of strategy, really. First of all, we, we recognise as a college that we're here to meet the needs of our community. No, no college does that on its own. For example, we don't offer, you know, agricultural provision here, but we offer a very wide range of courses. So we First and foremost, we're here to meet the needs of our community, and I think we do that very, very well. Uh, after that, we want to be um, a fantastic place to study, uh, and uh, the third, if you like, uh, core part of our uh, strategy is to be a fantastic place to work as well. So it is all about the people, it's about the main stakeholders, it's about the students, uh, and it's also about the staff too. We want to make sure that Runshaw is not just a, a wonderful place to study, but it's a a fantastic place to work. And I love the fact that two of the three bullet points in your strategic plan have the word fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Well, why not? I mean, yeah, it, is, it, has been a, it has been a challenging decade, I think, for, for, for anyone working in the post-16 sector. But uh, we, we believe absolutely firmly that, that you know, despite the external challenges, and, and there are many, uh, there's absolutely no reason why, um, you know, it, it still can't be... Um, uh, a fantastic place to study and to work. You know, in our learner satisfaction surveys and our staff satisfaction surveys in the last um, 10 years have shown year-on-year improvement. Um, so, you know, despite the difficulties uh, of the, and, uh, caused by the external challenges, we, we have been able to, we think, continually improve the experience of our, of our main stakeholders at the college. Simon Ponson, thank you. I'm Nick Burnham, Principal of Cardinal Newman College. And tell us about Cardinal Newman College. It's my first visit to a uh, Roman Catholic uh, post-16 institution. So give, give us a flavour of the ethos here. Well, uh, very, um, very proud of the Catholic ethos of the college. It, it's an inclusive one. So we see ourselves as a sixth-form college uh, for the whole community. Um, and everybody is welcome. Um, and whereas you would say maybe from a school perspective, you would say uh, they were there for the Catholic community first, but then welcoming others... There's a slight difference post-16, and we're very proud of the welcome we give everybody. And actually walking around, it's uh, uh, quite striking that there's a, uh, an ethnic mix there. I mean, just give us a flavour of the kind of mix of young people, and, but both in terms of ethnicity, but also where they might come from. Um, everybody, from all ethnicities, um, predominantly we, ref- or we reflect our, our local community. So um, about 
25% of the population would be Asian, Muslim, Asian heritage, uh, and then 75% of the students would be predominantly white. Obviously, lots of other uh, ethnicities reflected in the student body therein. Uh, and it's a very, very cohesive community. Um, the, the place thrives on, on, a, on a sense of family, a sense of togetherness. And even though we are 3,500 students um, strong, um, it does feel like there's a strong togetherness of all the students. It does. It, it's got all that, but it's also very high performing. Just kind of give us a flavour of um, two, two things. What, what kind of entry requirements would you have of students coming into the college, but also where do they then go when they finish their predominantly A-levels, but BTECs as well? Yeah, we're really, really proud of, uh, of the vision of the college and its achievements. Um, and the vision for the college is of a comprehensive sixth form college, which might be you know, slightly unfashionable in this day and age. So uh, to gain entry to the A-level provision, it's in new money, and I've got to get this right in numbers, it's uh, uh, three fours and two fives. Okay? But that said, we are also Cambridge University's hub for... Uh, for Lancashire uh, and therefore we attract students with much much higher GCSE scores as, as well so we get the full range of ability here and then uh, we measure our success predominantly by value added by progress um, and we're really really proud of our, our progress because we are the single top performing six one college in terms of progress uh, this year we're third for A level and, and joint top for the vocational so they're, they're leaving, you know, those entry criteria are set appropriately. They're, they're, they're low and giving people chances, but they're flourishing. Uh, and then around the high 70s, we'll go on to university uh, and all um, a real mix, but, you know, a lot of Russell Group, um, 16 or so on to Oxbridge, 30 or so on to medicine dentistry every year. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, a real agent for social mobility. Absolutely. Just two, two last things. One is related to that, and that is... With the change from A star to G grading over to the nine to ones, some institutions will have kind of cranked up their entry qualifications. I listened to you earlier talking about why you weren't doing that, and I just think it was such such a telling kind of commitment to inclusivity. So, can you just kind of rehearse what 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 your philosophy is? Yeah, our viewpoint was that these are the same kids, and that these same kids had flourished with us before, and that what we wouldn't do, which what I thought would be a natural. Uh, inflation creep of, of entry criteria that will happen on a subject level as well as on a, on a college level and we were at pains to not do that um, my brother is a deputy at a school and he was telling me last year these are the same kids getting fours that were getting c's and if that's the case then we can get them really great grades at a level and so we were at pains to make sure that we weren't that college that allowed that to, to, to happen I think you could argue that you, on a subject level you might want to finesse that with the fives and fours. Um, so that'll be interesting going, going forward. And I do, as I said to you before, I've, I've got my worries about a one to nine scale mm. that you know, students that we would have seen that should have had their self-esteem really high and, doing really, and proud of themselves when they've got Bs and lots of Bs and Cs would now be dealing themselves as not necessarily as successful um, because they've got all those seven, eights and nines above them. Yeah, indeed. And, and at the other end of the spectrum, you've got and you will inherit some of those students who, whilst they meet entry criteria, they haven't got their grade four in maths and English and therefore they need to do resets. And the, the thing that struck me about your view of that is not to see that as kind of punishment, but actually an opportunity. Just, just kind of talk us through how you manage that. Yeah, we... I think we're lucky in the sense that we do get students who want to pass their, you know, so they've got that inner motivation to, to get there. But the changes we made some years ago to our GCSE provision where 
what we do is we, we, we place it as important as any other course that any student is doing. And I don't think that's always been the case uh, in colleges. So all staff contribute to it. Uh, it's not in a ghetto. It's not unloved. Uh, and these students get high-quality lessons. They do want to achieve, and, and our recent results will be, will be way above national average pass rates for the actual first-time students pass it. So it, it's, it's not rocket science. It's, 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 it's making sure you do something properly. Bernard, thank you. You're welcome. Liz Smith, um, Principal and Chief Executive of Preston's College. So here we are at Preston's College. Tell us a little bit uh, about it. Uh, we're very much a vocational technical college. Uh, we're at the heart of the community. Um, our mission is about making our learners the most employable. We have around uh, 11,000 uh, <laughs> students, um, young people, adults, and uh, what we offer really is that blend, uh, we have a very diverse range of learners, um, but the, the aim really is to provide those aspirational career pathways to ensure people have the skills that best fit for them getting a, a really good job, uh, apprenticeships, going on to higher education, whatever's appropriate, but ultimately into really good jobs. And what I uh, loved listening to is the emphasis on the quality of teaching or in particular the quality of learning and the way that you're doing that is in a very developmental way with staff. Could you just give us a quick flavour of that? Yeah, absolutely. We we changed very much to recognise people really are passionate. Our teachers are really passionate about trying to do the best for their learners. And it's about making sure they have the tools, the techniques, the, the passion, the, the innovations to drive them forward. And they need to do that in a supportive way. They need to know actually what's expected, uh, but they need then the tools, uh, how they're going to achieve that, uh, and to be done in both a challenging but a supportive way. So if they need support, it is done with a mentor. It's very clearly identified uh, that professional kind of discussion that then provides the support they require to achieve the outcomes for their, their learners. That was great. We talked about T-levels a, a few minutes ago and you know the history of vocational education and technical education is littered with examples where it hasn't kind of worked and lots of money has been spent. T-levels are an opportunity, aren't they? But just, just give us a flavour from your point of view of why the government could have been a bit more resolute in, in the decisions it made? I think T-levels have the ability, or did have the ability, to be a game-changer, to actually provide a very sound alternative that was based, though, on that notion of skills development with the underpinning academic knowledge would have been fabulous. I think already we have seen complete flaws in the thinking. To my mind, what is coming out of this is a um, you know this notion of uh, parity of esteem with A level is the wrong approach. What we seem to have is the academic knowledge component with a bit of kind of BTEC stuff thrown in, uh, cobbled together, and ultimately those people will not be able to develop the skills and have the underpinning knowledge. This is about applied learning and we're already not being able to deliver that applied learning in a way that it is being promoted. Yeah, very, very powerfully put there. One final thing which we've been talking about is the consequences of a narrowing of the curriculum in schools uh, with an obsession from some schools, not all, with um, the kind of EBAC and with worries about whether progress aid leads people to narrow down their curriculum, blah, blah, blah. 
What's the consequence for you? Because you'll be getting youngsters who maybe won't have experienced the kind of broadening range of skills and subjects that they might have done a few years back. And what, what, what is that leading to in terms of your decisions about courses you can offer? First of all, I think we're dealing with a very different type of learner. Um, the, and some of it is just a real lack of awareness about anything that is vocational, technical in nature, which is really sad. So I think they, it's a very limiting, blinkered approach to a school curriculum. Because of the way you know the drivers are, that isn't a criticism of schools. Um, so then you're having to, you know, they're just not aware. If they then are not of families that um, are working in a particular sector, they have no sense of, of almost the um, the opportunities, uh, the you know what what actually the art of the possible is. So you're almost starting from scratch then. And what we're tending to see is that still, um, you know, alternative provision is for the naughty boys and girls. That actually we sometimes you have people who are incredibly talented they're academically bright but they're very talented there's still the pressure to continue on your academic route and still that sense of vocational technical being almost the second grade provision and as we know that can be some of the most fulfilling and uh, kind of creative opportunities for learners to really achieve their potential um, so I, I, I'm concerned uh, but we do work hard to try and ensure that people then that sense of in the first year then they're more or less growing up testing challenging you know what actually do they want to do what you know what really um invigorates them you know what gives them a passion because actually everybody needs to achieve and develop well and they need time in order to do that and and as we know not everybody knows what they want to do at 16. No and I think just just talk, talking with you in the team what's struck me is a an absolute commitment to technical and vocational education a real passion for it but also recognizing that these are young and older people where sometimes you're still looking to unlock that so you talk about the humanity of it the bit i haven't thought about uh, and i know, of course i've heard about the way the arts have been squeezed in schools and pe has been squeezed in schools i hadn't thought about the effect of home economics food technology being squeezed but you're seeing fewer youngsters therefore who were coming through who were going to go into a traditional kind of catering course and then go on into the catering industry yeah well I think for a number of reasons a just not in the curriculum uh, and that sense of you know again lack of awareness um, the fact that actually now fewer families cook meals from scratch and so that cooking element is is not necessarily seen um, and I think also as well um, you know before uh, people had part-time jobs, working in restaurants, you know, all of that kind of thing. Again, uh, fewer part-time jobs uh, and young people engaging in that. So on the whole kind of element, and it's really surprising because if you think about the, the TV and, you know, the, the artisan, the kind of fabulous chefs and all the rest of it, um, there's a real sense there, but I think almost that is its downside, that it's promoted that really hard work <laughs> and that kind of scary environment about all of that. But it's a real shame um, we're seeing that decline in uh, people coming in in terms of the catering hospitality environment. Where we are seeing is that whole um, more event management kind of leading into that, the logistics actually and the planning required and the management skills required for the wider hospitality event management is certainly getting a lot of traction. So um, you can sneak in kind of the catering elements in there. but. Um, 
and the industry is changing itself. So, you know, on all fronts, really. Um, mm. I think we're all having to deal with that right across the, the sector. Well, you're doing great work, Liz Smith, you and your team. Thanks for having us here today. Thank it's you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I'm Pat Sower. Tell us what you do. At the moment, I'm working in the area between mental health and education, helping people understand, get more aware and know how to act when they come against mental health. And when we talk to school and college leaders, whether they're in maintained or independent schools, mental health comes up all the time, mental health of, of, of pupils. It has a very personal connection for you, doesn't it? Do you mind talking about why? No, I don't. So last year, my 17-year-old son took his own life. He took an overdose in the second day of term, having been fantastic last summer, and then was under CAMS for about nine weeks. And then at the end of half term, he actually took his own life. It must have been devastating for you, but it's given you a sense of mission that we, we have to do something here. What, what, what do you think, with hindsight, might, may have contributed to the anxieties and so on that you were feeling? Uh, I think it's very different for every suicide. By necessity, it's a complicated issue and, and it's underlying it, an illness. Yeah. Um, but for Dom in particular, he'd come out as gay when he was 14. Got off to a great start with that, with plenty of likes on Facebook. But then he came against old-fashioned bullying. Isolation from the group um, and so the some social stuff media wasn't bullying. Social media bullying as well. So it uh, started off as Facebook likes, 250 likes from supportive friends, and then he went back into school. And the physical um, desertion of him by the male friend group was instant, almost instant in school. Um, I would have said almost as if it was a catching thing. They were 14 years old. Um, and the, the whole thing was written off as, as banter. Uh, within the school and in games for instance nobody would partner with him and whatever was happening in the cloak rooms he didn't want to do games anymore and one of the things that happened was instead of that being dealt with with the rest of the pupils Don was withdrawn from games so he never had games again from the age of 14. So underlying his social anxiety a massive loss of trust in adults. Mm, So you've left the role you had previously as primary head teacher yep. uh, and you're using this period to campaign what are you campaigning what are you saying we should be thinking about okay so what I really want to campaign on it's left me with a really strong desire to stop this happening to other people um, I think schools have a social and community remit and most teachers I know really want to embrace that in their work but if you look at mental health and mental well-being overall in our society we've got a mountain to climb so what I want to do is help work with schools to un- understand what we mean by mental well-being mental fitness alongside physical fitness as part of our education in schools to teach the practical skills to children to teachers and to parents for how to intervene how to spot signs and symptoms so that we can as a society develop the confidence to help people and if we do that we should be able to manage more of our mental health without us having to call on experts but also know when we need to absolutely it's kind of legitimising that mental health exists and it could afflict any of us just like the physical things that we get. Yeah, so one of the things I've learnt from losing Dom and I've learnt a lot of things, hindsight's a very bright light to shine on your life, but one of the things I've learnt is that we all have mental health all the time and sometimes we're in good shape and sometimes we're not in good shape and so for me this is about recognising we can teach people how to know themselves and how to help each other. 
And if people want to know more about what you're doing, where would they find you? At the moment, they will find me on starfishing.co.uk, which is brand new. Um, it's called Starfish because as a teacher, I loved that assembly about rescuing the one starfish. We might not be able to solve everything, but let's help the people we can. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Steve Rollitz, I'm the Inspections and Accountability Specialist at ASCO. Just for those people who don't know Steve, before you joined ASCO, you were in senior leadership. Just give us a flavour of the job you did and, and where you were. Yeah, I was uh, a vice principal outside of Portsmouth uh, in Havant and um, was part of the leadership team there that turned around a school that had previously been in special measures and uh, we got it to good in all areas and in under two years, so it was a pretty transformative experience. Really. And that would be what, a kind of that, the, the, we endlessly look about this white working class population, is that what that was? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been a lot in the press over the last few weeks about this issue and, uh, you know, the school that I was in before I'd absolutely characterised as being, you know, in exactly that sort of community with... Um, sort of generational issues around poverty and deprivation, um, particularly around white working class. Now you're our uh, specialist in terms of um, accountability and in particular working with Ofsted. You've got excellent relationships with the team at Ofsted, but similarly you, have, you bring a kind of detachment to what they're doing. And you've written a blog which has caught a lot of people's imagination. Just kind of tell us what you were saying in that blog. Yeah, I think it was a, a plea really, probably to all involved, to, to try and look at the bigger issue, um, which is to say that, you know, we, we can debate for a while about the accuracy of, um, of, of Ofsted judgments, we can talk about whether Ofsted judgments are fair, and I think those are all valid and important things to talk about, whether they're fair on the schools, um, and, you know, if a school, for example, in a, in a particular community with a particular catchment demonstrably has less chance of achieving, a, you know, a, a particular grading, that of course is an issue for the school, but I suppose what I was trying to say was beyond that what does that then mean for the community that that school serves and you know is there a risk that an adverse Ofsted judgment um, actually could do damage in those communities so it's not just about whether the judgment is fair and you know and, and I know Amanda Spielman talked about it you know Ofsted not being a, an effort grade um, but I think that's problematic because that assumes that the, the damage done is just simply done to to the report but it's what's beyond the report what, what lies underneath that and, and, and how might that actually entrench um, those areas of, of disadvantage and make the situation worse and you know it's not a statement in the blog that that is the case but I think what I was trying to say was that we just don't know yeah, so that's talking essentially about what the consequences are yeah. after a judgment has been yeah. made. But the blog was prompted, in a sense, yeah. by some work I think Stephen Tierney had illuminated, which was using Ofsted data. Just explain what that was going on. Yeah, so what, so what, the, um, what happened was Ofsted released, I think someone doing some research, um, some data, effectively, on the proportion of schools with um, particular um, levels of white uh, British uh, free school meals children and the correlation with, with Ofsted inspection grades. Um, and what Stephen then did is he took that information and wrote a bit of a blog that just said, look, I think we've got an issue here because particularly, you know, schools serving um, catchments with very high numbers of those children seem to have a far, far less chance, for example, of being judged as outstanding. I think it's something like 4% of those schools were judged outstanding. Um, so, yeah, and that's, I guess that's what I mean. And, you know, that, that is certainly an issue that, that we all need to look at. And there is an issue there about um, fairness, potentially. Um, I know Ofsted would have argued um, that what they do is they go in and they inspect what they see and they have to do that consistently and I do have some sympathy with that um, but equally um, 
is do we get to a point where actually just inspecting what we see may be doing damage? That's I, th- I suppose that's the question I'm flagging. Okay, and for just finally, we think that the overall direction of travel from Ofsted is. Um, a positive one. Just give a, a, a flavour of some of the things that we, we might look for when we see a new schedule for them, which I think is coming out in uh, the autumn of 2019, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it'd be no surprise to, to anyone who's been following it to see that we've been talking a lot um, with Ofsted, and Ofsted have been saying a lot publicly about the curriculum. Um, so we are certainly going to see a ramping up of the importance of the curriculum um, in, in terms of inspection. Um, I'd don't think that will necessarily, you know, we'll end up with a curriculum judgment. Um, I think what we're more likely to see is something along the lines of a quality of education judgment um, that perhaps might encapsulate curriculum, perhaps aspects of teaching, learning and assessment, maybe something around the progress of current pupils. Some sort of all-encompassing quality of education grade, I think, is probably going to be coming down the line. Um, But also, and we heard recently from Amanda, uh, perhaps an increased focus on behaviour, which is a little bit surprising because I I don't think behaviour is ever not been focused on at inspection times um, but you know n- needless to say I think that's probably part of their agenda uh, you know which understandably again they have a responsibility to parents so I do understand the tension there that, that, that Ofsted have in serving a range of stakeholders but just to come back to what I was saying it, it, it's got to go beyond just serving parents or just serving schools we've got to look at the bigger picture I think which is about communities and uh, and how those Ofsted judgments whatever they may be will play out an impact on particularly those communities of disadvantage. And I guess the ASCAL view will be whether it's curriculum or behaviour we hope there isn't some kind of prescribed view of what the ideal curriculum or the ideal behaviour policy should be that is for school leaders with their governors to decide isn't it? Yeah absolutely and we've and, you know we've, we've we've already been pushing on that um, you know so Ofsted talked quite early on in this process about some concerns they had around shortening of key stage three um, and whilst you know on a personal note I, I'd have some sympathy with that um, that, that, that there is a risk potentially when you shorten key stage three that, that maybe some subjects might be lost and there is a, a, a potentially a risk to the breadth of the curriculum but those are the sorts of decisions that I would still want school leaders to be making in their context knowing their pupils um, rather than it being decreed um, from on high that thou shalt not do a shortened key stage three. I think there's just a, a risk there probably to, to schools and school, and, and school leadership and their ability to meet the needs of their, of their kids. Um, so, yes, yeah, certainly we've been pushing for that. And actually, you know, to be fair to Ofsted, what we're hearing from them, uh, not yet having really seen the meat of the framework, is that, that, that you know, they acknowledge that risk and they do want to make sure that, that, that um, they're not prescribing a set format for the curriculum or for behaviour policies. But of course, as ever with Ofsted, as Amanda's acknowledged herself, when Ofsted talk about something, things happen um, and people do follow suit. And of course, the danger is that with perhaps unintentionally, it can lead schools and school leaders down perhaps unhelpful paths. So we, we, all of us, I think, have to be really careful as we start to hear more and more emerging about the 2019 framework, just to check our thinking, check Ofsted's thinking, and make sure that we're not storing up problems for the future. And check that they're a force for good. Absolutely, which is, you know, what we, what we all, I think we can all buy into that. Mm. Um, but again, it's that issue sometimes of best intentions, isn't it? Um, and and we absolutely, I think, would subscribe to the view that Ofsted should be a force for good in the system. Um, but as the National Audit Office re- report said recently, you know, there isn't at the moment a compelling body of evidence that really proves the impact that Ofsted are having. And that is a difficult one for them to, to, to separate out and for them to explain. Um, but I think we've just, perhaps all of us, have got to just try a little bit harder maybe to tackle that problem. And I'd love to see Ofsted at the, at the front of that piece. Steve Rollett, thanks very much.
Hello, I'm Duncan Baldwin. I'm Deputy Director of Policy at ASCOL. Now, I think it would be fair to say that we think probably Progress 8 as a measure is is the best that we have had. So we're not saying that Progress 8 is a terrible thing. But there have been some recent concerns about it, haven't there? In, in particular, the way it reflects particular cohorts. Can you just kind of explain it to me? Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we shouldn't be seeking a measure that's the holy grail. There isn't one that's perfect. Any measure we have is going to be problematic in some way. The recent concern has been about whether this measure fairly reflects schools that have particular types of intakes with large numbers of white disadvantaged pupils, for example. Um, and sometimes these figures are, are confused by other schools with different types of populations. The key is we really need to understand what the population is in a school so we can compare how schools are doing like for like. Um, and why would um, a population that is white working class have any significance at all if you compared it with some, someone else? Well, I mean, clearly we all know that there's long-term entrenched poverty and this is a serious problem. And this isn't a new problem relating to Progress 8 either. You know, when we've had 5A start to see all measures that we've had before that, the same problem has been there. Um, solving long-term disadvantage and the, and the performance of these pupils is, of course, a long-term issue. The is what I think what schools are, are, are concerned about is that, that other schools are finding that their uh, figures seem better but precisely because of the mix of pupils. And this is why we need to get to the core of the problem, which is when, when, when schools have got particular types of cohorts, they need to be able to compare how they're doing with similar schools. And so if, um, I'm right in thinking, if we had a look at white working class, and I know this is terrible, kind of sweeping generalisation, but let's mm -hmm. go, go with it. If we look at white working class children in, say, the North East and mm -hmm. compare them with white working class children in London, mm -hmm. what might we find? Well, the evidence shows that they make similarly bad progress. Right. Um, uh, work that FFT did showed that particularly clearly, and this is the problem. Um, if we just look at disadvantage, we get a different picture when we look at disadvantaged white pupils. So we've got to be, com we've got to be sure that we're comparing like for like. Uh, and my last point is uh, the Secretary of State has talked about, uh, kind of slightly obliquely, moving towards a single measure of a school. And I think the ASCAL view would be we've got to be really cautious about a single measure of anything. Can you kind of explain yeah. why? OK. Well, whenever we've had a measure um, that, 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 that's held in esteem above all the other measures that, that we could have, schools sort of work towards that measure. Um, and when schools are focusing on that measure, it distorts the measure. What we want is no, is no particular measure that is elevated above any others. If we have a basket of, of, of measures and indicators, this will help schools understand how they're doing in a whole range of contexts. I think that's what we need to be looking for. Um, it's always been a disaster when anybody's taken the view that a single measure um, is the way to show how schools are doing. It's completely, uh, you know, it's, it's completely the wrong way to go. Duncan Baldwin, thank you very much. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.